So as we, with that introduction, rather lengthy sort of uh, explanation of um, our philosophy of preaching here, uh, this way we are all subject to Scripture and you are not subject to whatever I have been, you know, thinking about this past week or whatever I like or dislike. Uh, so this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, and we're going to read through verse 6 of chapter 4. Uh, if you're able, let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him since therefore christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of god for the time that is past suffices for doing what the gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us uh, that which is unclear and uncertain to us. Uh, we pray that you would make it clear, that you would make it certain. Uh, that which is clear and certain, uh, would you drive it home to our hearts for our own comfort and encouragement. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. You may be seated. If you were, um, I've, I've reminded you, I think from week to week, um, maybe every single week, uh, that Peter is writing to uh, Gentiles in the, in the first century Roman world, the mid-60s uh, A.D., um, Gentiles who have come to saving faith in Christ and um, he's writing, in essence, to prepare them for trial, for suffering, for persecution. And that theme keeps coming up throughout the book. If you were being persecuted on account of Christ, what would you need to know? If you were suffering for righteousness sake, if you're being persecuted for righteousness sake, what would you want? What, what need would you have? What what information would give you hope and peace and comfort? That is what this passage offers, even with the parts. And as we read it, I, I trust you could sort of pick out the problem phrases. Yes, there are plural of them in this one passage. 
But I think frequently when we endure suffering and, and persecution, one of Satan's greatest tools is to make you feel alone. This passage reminds you you're not alone. This passage reminds you that there is someone who knows and knows intimately and, and deeply and even far greater than you do. This passage reminds us that Jesus sees and Jesus knows and that he is for you. First of all, let me just remind you, as Peter does, that Christ died for sin. We read it right off the bat in verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins. Part of what Peter wants for us is encouragement and hope and comfort in the face of persecution as we endure trials. And so naturally, Peter points to Jesus as one who has also suffered, who has also been persecuted because of righteousness. And you can go back and read the Gospels. And, and everything about Jesus' crucifixion was unjust. He was charged with things that weren't true, and then they paid off some guys to pretend to be witnesses so that they could verify, and you have to put that in quotes, right? Verify that which wasn't true. He was charged with things that were true. You know, it's not actually blasphemy if, you know, you are God. If you claim to be God and are God, that is not blasphemy. And yet for that, he was also persecuted. For that, he was crucified. For that, he suffered. And some versions might say Christ also died once for sins. The ESV has suffered either works. But the point is, this should be comforting to you. He's, he's been writing about suffering. He's been writing about, in fact, I debated long and hard last week about including this part with last week's text because it so closely connects with the, the warning, the reminder, the heads up, the, 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 that suffering's coming, that you may very well suffer for Christ. And it's comforting and encouraging us for us to know that Christ has been down that road already. That when you suffer for righteousness sake, you can at least, even if you feel the alonest person in all the world, Jesus knows that. Jesus has suffered for that. He knows what you're going through. And I don't mean He knows the way I know, I don't know, biology, right? Because I read it in a book. I've learned some stuff about it. No, he, he knows it. Because your pain is His pain. Your suffering is His suffering. And so Peter reminds us that Christ has died for sin. And, and that's, that's comforting to us because He's the righteous one suffering for the unrighteous. The godly who committed no sin in and of Himself and yet is paying the debt that sin deserves. In other words, the next time you start singing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, don't forget the next line. 
Nobody but Jesus. Peter wants us to be comforted, to be encouraged by the reality that the righteous one has suffered for the unrighteous. For he who committed no sin, in whom there was no guile, in whom there there is no deception, suffered for sin. We're the ones who are far from God. We're the ones who have left. And he suffered and bled and died to bring us back. In fact, Peter writes in verse 18, to bring us to God. We're the sinners by nature. And what does every sin deserve? Well, you could quote Paul, I suppose. The wages of sin is death. You could quote the children's catechism. What does every sin, what does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. That's what we deserve. And Peter reminds us, Christ has borne that wrath and that curse for you. Jesus died for sin. But Peter also tells us that Christ was raised victorious over sin. You're going to notice there's a little uh, preposition. Preposition? These are prepositions, right? I need some grammar people. These are prepositions. For and over. Uh, You're going to notice that those are going to be the things that change uh, primarily through the outline. Christ died for sin. Christ is raised victorious over sin. Notice in verse, at the end of verse 18, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And with that, there's question number one in this passage. Is it in the spirit or is it by the spirit? Some of your versions, the King James, the New King James, the NIV, I think all will say by the spirit and they'll have spirit capitalized. There, there are no capital letters in Greek. You don't, you don't, you don't get capital letters unless it's a person's name, a proper noun. And so the question is, is it in the spirit as in a, a, a new form, a different sort of a different body in a sense, or is it by the Holy Spirit? And certainly you can read the New Testament and, and throughout the New Testament, you will find passages that tell us Christ raised himself. And you'll find passages that tell us the Father raised Him from the dead. And you will find passages that tell us the Spirit raised Christ from the dead. So it may very well be by the Spirit. I think, however, Peter is writing a parallel contrast. I think he's making a contrast between put to death, made alive, in the flesh, in the Spirit. I think he's making a reference to the new nature, the resurrected spiritual body of Christ after his resurrection. Part of the reason I think that is because as you read through this passage, there's a chronology to it. Back up to the 50,000 foot view and you get suffering and death in verse 18. You get resurrection in verse 18. Uh, you get, um, you'll get ascension and session um, seated at the right hand of the Father at um, in verse 22. And I think there seems to be a chronology that Peter is writing here. But we also know that Paul talks about the fact that our bodies at the resurrection are bodies. And they're the same body. 
but they're not the same body. Right? You could, you could recognize Jesus after his resurrection and he could eat. And, and he was a body because when he ate, you couldn't physically see the food going down his, I guess, esophagus, right? I mean, it would be the esophagus in humans. I'm just saying like, you would almost picture a ghost. Well, he wasn't a ghost. He had a body and you couldn't see the food going down from mouth to stomach. And yet he could, he could be with people and then suddenly not there at the same time. He could end up in the upper room when the doors and windows are locked. Is it a body? Yes. Is it a physical body? Yes. But is it a spiritual body? It's a new form. It's a, it's a body made for heaven. Because he's seated at the right hand of God. And, and our human nature is there with him. And so Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 15 also, the way our new bodies will be designed for our new realm after our own resurrection. But the bigger point, not to get overly bogged down in the details, but what does the resurrection of Jesus mean except that he has defeated sin? What does the resurrection mean except that he has taken the greatest weapon sin has, the, the, the last hurrah, the, the most powerful weapon that sin can throw at you. I guess you don't really throw. I mean, it's the point of throwing a gun. That's a, but you get my point. Is death itself. And if, if that's the greatest Tool, if that's the greatest weapon that sin has and Jesus has defeated it, then he has defeated sin itself. Christ has died for sin, but he's also been raised victorious over sin. You see, nailing Jesus to the cross... Too many in the flesh standing there at the time who mocked and spit on him and made fun of him. Perhaps to Satan as well. That sure looked like victory for the evil one. And Christ's resurrection proves that that death wasn't the victory Satan thought he was getting. In fact, we read in verse 22 that he's now seated at, he's gone into heaven. There's the ascension, seated at the right hand of God, session, to give you the fancy theological term. Um, and those, those angels and authorities and powers, those, those spiritual realm things that are our enemy, they are subject to him. Jesus has won. He died for sin, but he's been raised victorious over our sin. And he's been made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Again, there's problem number two. No, I don't think Jesus went into hell and preached the gospel um, and this, this is one of those Sundays where you almost wish you had a Q&A after worship. And, and you could just sort of leave off 
some of the difficult conversations and save those for like Q&A time afterwards. That would be uh, fun and engaging in a lot of ways. This is Christ telling, this is post-resurrection, pre-ascension, Christ proclaiming victory over these fallen and evil spirits, fallen angels. In other words, I understand him not preaching in hell the gospel, the word proclaimed. You notice, again, some of your versions may say preached instead of proclaimed. Um, this is a, the Greek word used here is a generic word for proclaim, uh, not gospel preaching. That's a different verb um, that, that Peter could have used and it's not what he used. And spirits almost, prison almost never, ever refers to hell. Peter Again, Peter had all sorts of words he could have used. Spirits almost never refers to uh, the souls of deceased humans. It always has something to do with angels or fallen angels or, or demons or that sort of thing. So, so I, I, this, is, this is a proclamation of victory. You've seen the pictures. The end of World War II. After VE Day, the, the, every newspaper in the entire Western world ran some headline at the very top of the page announcing that the war was over and that we had won. That's what Christ is doing. Announcing, proclaiming his victory over sin, over Satan, over death itself, and over these fallen angels. Christ died for sin. Christ was raised victorious over sin. Why? So that you and I might die to sin. Notice what he does in the first five verses of chapter four. So you and I are united to Christ by faith and that makes a difference in our lives. That, that changes the way we live. And so while those around us, again, he's writing to Gentiles in this mid-60s Roman world, and you get this description of what they're like. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, debauchery, uh, and it goes on from there. That's, that's the used to be. That's the person you saints once were. Again, to sort of steal Paul's kind of language. And such were some of you, Paul writes. And that's part of Peter's point, I think, at the beginning of verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for that. You are now new. You are different. You are not like them anymore. And here's the thing, that is usually the cause of our suffering and our persecution. Notice what he writes in verse 4. You don't, they're surprised that you don't join them in that and they malign you. It's the very fact that we, as believers, with new hearts, with new loves, with new passions, with new desires, with a new king and ruler, and, and the, everything new, it, it frustrates them. Unbelievers. 
that we don't participate in the kinds of things that they participate in. They want company in their misery, but we, because of Christ in us, because we are new, because we've been adopted into this new family, we don't participate. We as Christians are given new hearts, we're given new loves, and we don't, as verse 2 tells us, we don't live for our human passions. We don't live for, for what we used to live for. We live to honor Christ. We live to do the will of God at the end of verse 2. But here's the catch. And this is at the end of verse 1. Yet another sort of cryptic, unclear phrase in this passage. I told you, it's it's fraught with them. It's filled with these sort of, I don't know what to make of that sort of phrases. Uh, Notice what he says. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Uh, Certainly the rest of Scripture teaches us we will not be sinless until the new creation or until we die or until Christ comes back, whichever, whichever of those comes first, right? We will not be sinless in this body, in this life. So Peter doesn't mean that we become sinless, that we become perfect. But there's an encouragement here. A willingness to suffer on account of Christ is actually a bit of an identity marker for you and for others around you. A willingness to suffer on account of Christ is an indication both to you and to others that the passions of this life just don't matter anymore. A willingness to suffer in the flesh is an indication that the draw of the old man doesn't have the same pull it once did. It doesn't have the same draw that it once had. There's a sense in which suffering actually encourages and confirms your faith in Christ to you and to others around you. Christ died For sin, Christ was raised victorious over sin so that we might die to sin and ultimately live without sin. Notice verses 5 and 6. What exactly do we have to gain from the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ? Well, what we have to gain is not just in this life, but it's in the life to come. What we have to gain is eternity with Him. And there's coming a day when Christ will return, verse 5, as judge of those who are still alive when He comes back and those who have already died, those who have already passed away. When He comes back as that victorious King, but also as judge to... To judge the world, to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, those who live the lives described by Peter here, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, uh, lawless idolatry, 
the Gentiles, as he calls them in verse 3, those who are outside of the church, those who have never come to saving faith in Christ, they will be judged. They're not united to Christ by faith, and they will have to give an account before Christ as the judge. And they'll be found guilty. And they'll be sentenced to death. Peter writes about the return of Christ as comfort and hope for believers. We suffer. We're maligned because we don't participate in the things of the world. And in a sense, Peter says, but justice is coming. You don't need to seek justice now. You need to seek their souls and and bring them to saving faith in Christ. But there's coming a time when Christ will return and he will stand as judge and he will pronounce judgment on them. You need not seek that too quickly. Besides, there's verse 6. This is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. Meaning, again, this is, this is, is this number four? Are we keep in count. This is like number four or five in terms of, you know, confusion, cryptic sort of phrases. Um, those who are already dead in, in Greek philosophy, there was this notion that once you were dead, you were absolved of all responsibility. That, that responsibility only matters in this life. And once you died, then then all bets were sort of off. And, and I think Peter's uh, writing to that sort of philosophy. Even those people who heard the gospel and are already dead, there's coming a time when they will be judged if they didn't believe or even if they responded in faith, they will live in the Spirit the way God does. In other words, when Christ returns and to judge the living and the dead... Those who are outside of Christ will be sentenced to death. And those who are in Christ will be sentenced to life with Him. In the same kind of spiritual body that He has. We as believers anticipate a life with Christ in eternity. In the perfect and final kingdom of God. Without sin. A world in which sin no longer has any power, authority at all. In other words, this is really how Christ... This is the conclusion of verse 18. Christ suffered and bled and died to bring us to God. Not just now, but forever. So when John, our oldest, was born... Uh, the OBGYN was a friend of ours. I may have used this illustration before. Now that I'm starting to say it out loud, it's starting to sound familiar. Um, the, uh, the, you hate when you sort of keep going back to your standard illustration. Um, uh, the OBGYN was a friend of ours. So her husband and I had been friends at Clemson, and uh, we hung out together, uh, us, Nancy and I, and, and Matt and Leslie. Leslie was the, the OBGYN, and then another couple, uh, Bob and Polly. Um, we, we all kind of hung out together from time to time. Uh, right after John was born, um, uh, Leslie knew that I had been a biology major for a while and was, was interested in medicine. My dad was a OBGYN. She, she knew all that stuff, right, because we had that kind of that friendship relationship. Um, 
And so she, she took me, she, she comes in the room. She's like, Jeff, you've got to come with me. So she, she takes me into the nursery in, in the hospital. You know, this is the part where if you don't have a badge, right, the doors lock and you have to, you have to, to do your badge or to scan your badge at the little lock thing to let the door unlock. And, and if you have the right color code on your badge or if your badge unlocks the door, then you're allowed to go in. Leslie scans her badge and she walks in and I start in behind her. And you could see, and I knew, I knew enough that I was supposed to be cautious. Like I didn't want to suddenly get shot by all the nurseries in the, by all the nurses in the nursery. Um, but they were standing up. They were kind of moving. They were kind of looking at Leslie and I'm sorry. They were kind of looking at Dr. Linder and then looking at me and, and, um, she turned around and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jeff's with me. This passage says when you get to eternity, it's not because of your merit. You walk in and people start to look and get confused and get a little nervous and antsy and stand up. And Jesus turns and says, he's with me. She's with me. Christ died for sin, was raised victorious over sin so that we might die to sin and live forever without sin. Here's the question. This is number five or six on our list. Are you in the ark? See, Peter introduces in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3, Noah and baptism and the flood. And, And in essence, the eight, those who are in the ark are delivered from judgment for sin. The flood was sent as as judgment for sin. And if you were in the ark, you were spared that judgment. The ark points us to Jesus. Those who are in Christ are delivered from judgment for sin. There's your connection. That's not exactly the point Peter makes. Peter focuses on the flood. The waters of judgment, if you will. And says, there's actually... Um, a connection between baptism and these waters of judgment. And the point is simply this, and I'm stealing this from uh, Simon Kistemacher or William Hendrickson. They, they wrote a commentary set together, and I don't know which one, now that I'm saying it, I don't know which one wrote First Peter. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward spiritual reality. So the waters of of the flood in Noah's day um, correspond. Baptism corresponds to verse 21 corresponds to the waters of of the flood waters that cleanse the earth. The flood waters cleanse the earth of man's wickedness. The water of baptism indicates man's cleansing from sin. The flood separated Noah and his family from the wicked world. Baptism separates believers and their children from the wicked world of ours. And so the question is, are you in the ark? Have you been marked out as separate from the world? Do you belong to Christ? Are you in 
Christ. Baptism, the application of water doesn't save us. It is a picture. It is an outward sign of an inward spiritual reality. Our need for for spiritual cleansing that Christ does in us and for us. Are you in the ark? Have you been marked out as belonging to Christ and to his bride, the church? The sign of baptism indicates that you belong to God and through Christ who knows your suffering, who knows your pain, who knows your persecution. You will one day be delivered from that suffering and seated with him in the heavenly places. Christ knows your struggle. And he hasn't left you alone in it. Believer, be comforted. Be strengthened. Be encouraged. Knowing that Christ died for sin, was raised victorious over sin, so that we might die to sin and one day forever. For heaven's eternal day, we might live with him without sin. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you uh, have inspired these words. Uh, You uh, were at work through uh, Peter in writing these words, difficult as we might find them. Uh, We pray that you would teach us and comfort us and encourage us. And again, as we prayed after reading the the passage, would you take that which is unclear and, and make it clear to us? Grant us understanding, grant us wisdom. But more importantly, we pray that you would take that which is clear and strengthen our faith and equip us for service and ministry in a world that opposes the gospel. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.